Welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men, the Huzzah. only podcast made 100% by Knolls. We're not Knolls. We're not even pretending to be Knolls. Um, it's not. Yeah, I was going to say Knolls, but that joke doesn't really go anywhere. Yeah, that that's not a great joke. We're not furries. That, that would make more sense if we were. Um, and it's definitely not the only podcast made by old men. Does it does it still count as no country for or no country for old men if we don't all use masculine pronouns? Um, I think we're using men in like the fantasy term here, like the race of men. So yeah, I think we're elves. Good. We don't need you. Yeah, no elves, no halflings, no orcs. Uh, but I'm your host Troy, and with me is the co-host. You can call me Ed. This is a podcast. We are here to talk about things. Things like role-playing games, board games, and tabletop war games. Nerd stuff. Very much nerd stuff. Each of us has at least 20 years of experience with these games. And we've known each other for longer than that. So... Pretty sure we met in second grade? Third. Third. Uh... Yeah, I know it was third. Sometime I around schools. that. I was in a different school in second grade, so. Oh, yep, I remember that now. Yeah. And we've essentially been playing games that entire time. Pretty much, yeah. And at some point they started to use things like books and dice and actual rules and little miniatures instead of just, like, imagining fantasy elements. It was and all really just a trick to, to make me read outside of school. Yeah, I read outside of school anyways, but, um, yeah, I guess it was a trick to get me better at math. Joke's on you, I'm terrible at math. I was terrible at math until I started my new job that actually required me to do math. And I picked a career field where I don't have to do math. I, I tried that for decades, and yet here I am, somehow still needing math, and... I will uh, go hat in hand to all of my algebra teachers in high school who said that I would need to learn the Pythagorean theorem to do nebulous things in the work environment. And I finally used uh, the Pythagorean theorem for the first time uh, about a week ago. Okay, yeah, I've used that once or twice because um, I I do graphic design and sometimes you got to know how long that triangle is going to be when a customer wants a sign of a particular size. But, but quadratic equations can bite my ass. I'm an electrician. That's basically the only way that we can see electricity is through math. So jokes on me. I mean, our lightning is lightning math. Um, there's math in it. I'll I mean, take your word for it. I mean, once once you get your uh, your current that's you know overcoming that resistance of the air, there's some math going on when that lightning strikes. Ah, uh, yes, lightning, and like lightning, we are going to segue into our topic for today. Only four minutes in. Hooray! It's record time. Great. Yeah. Well, it's the first episode. Any time is a record. Fair. Fair enough. All right. So, today we're going to talk about one of the theories of gaming. It's not game theory, really. 
because it's not about how to like play games better. It's more of in terms of describing games and describing players. And that is GNS theory, uh, also known as gamist, narrativist, simulationist. This was originally developed by a guy named Ron Edwards in the late 90s. And it said in its original form that all games could be divided into three types and had kind of three types of players. There was gamists, which is people who play games for the mechanics and a lot of times to win. There were simulationists who play games in order to simulate real things. They want like mechanics in, they want stuff in the game that makes it as precise and as close to the real world as possible. And there were people, and there were narrativists, people who are there for the story and the drama and the game elements and the simulation elements were less of a factor for them. Now, this theory has been argued over for a long time. And I personally think it's useful to know, but I don't subscribe to the idea that everyone is one of these three and that they are mutually exclusive. Yeah, I don't think for me, I'd probably be a blend, particularly for simulationist and or narrativist. Not so much like just pure gameplay. Unless it's unless it's got something that's like a particularly interesting mechanic, that's really not what draws me in. Yeah. And to the same point, I would consider myself a narrativist first, a gamist second, a simulationist third. I'm I like games for the story, then the mechanics, and then for them replicating some real world effect that way down the line. But let's talk a little more in detail about what each of these entails. Sounds good. Gamist is the game mechanics. Um, most of these have a clear winner and loser. Uh, this is really most prevalent in board games, uh, more so than role-playing games, but it does show up in role-playing games um, and is heavily prevalent in most war games. Really? I would say so, yeah. Hmm. Things like Warhammer. It is entirely about the game mechanics when you're playing. Um, while people might have their own internal stories going on with their, like, 40k army, when you're actually playing the game, or I should say, the game itself has no mechanism for creating a story. Well, I guess that would explain why I don't particularly care for uh, 40k then. Same. I, well, I just... Not not same. I don't care for it for other reasons, and we can have a whole episode on that. And if I look at our list of topics, it does say we're going to have a whole episode on that, so stay tuned. Um, but part of the thing is, the gamest element of a game is required. You need to have resolution mechanics to make it a game that like can be played or else you're just doing improv or make-believe, which are fine, but are not tabletop games, are not role-playing games, are not board games. That's just making shit up. 
basically just a uh, a way to to uh, sell make believe to thirty year olds and make it socially acceptable. Yes. Well, <laughs> yes and no. Um, you need a resolution mechanic because otherwise it's just no. I win. Or I guess yes and if we're doing improv, you have to have some amount of gameism for it to be a thing. And that can be a resolution mechanic, whether that's dice or drawing cards or something else. Um, I think we'll probably talk about resolution mechanics specifically in later episodes. Um, but gamist-focused games include things like um, Magic the Gathering, where, yeah, there's a story and a setting, but the game doesn't... In like use that like that's just to create backdrop for these mechanics that you play against each other without concern for the actual story and setting main main like fantasy and sci-fi war games are also like this the warhammer games x-wing uh, is a personal favorite of mine but it's gamist you don't tell stories because you're using elements of existing stories and then just throwing them at each other and seeing who wins. I never really thought about it before, but that uh, that split between like gamism, simulation, and then role playing, it feels like that would also explain why, in general, I'm just not that good at board games, uh, particularly. Uh, like tabletop war games, I always seem to have issues wrapping my head around the mechanics. It's not necessarily like something that I focus on. And for X-Wing, that was always one particular problem is I knew the rules. I knew how things worked, but just somehow I can't sync up the strategy and how the mechanics all fit together. And that's just kind of a trend that I've noticed across all games. Yeah, and X-Wing in particular is very gamist because you're not really simulating anything except for, I guess, elements of the movies. But even then, you're doing elements of fictional movies simulating, eh. But you're playing a game. Like, it's very heavy on game mechanics that alter dice, that alter outcomes that allow you to, like, move in predetermined ways. So it's all about the game. There's a lot of board games that are just straight gamist. Um, Wingspan. I love Wingspan. It's a very cool game, but it doesn't really simulate anything. Take the birds at it and you've just got colorful tokens. Yeah, it's a lot of colorful tokens and a lot of birds, each of which kind of has a simulationist element because the mechanics of the game represent things particular to that bird. But there's no story to it. You are building a, like, bird sanctuary, but you do so by playing birds to it. There's no story element about how you went and got birds or anything. You just add more birds to your sanctuary and then put cubes down to get food for them and put cubes down to get eggs for them and get more birds. Get more and birds. You have the most That's always birds and the most points of birds. Yes. Get more birds. Always a good objective. It works for Wingspan, and it's a very pretty game and a very fun game, even if there is an optimal strategy, sort of. 
And there's a lot of good board games that are heavily gamist. Like, it's not a bad thing to have interesting resolution mechanics and to have elements that are, like, winning, losing, playing a game. People like that. That's why board games are popular. It's also not an exclusive thing. You don't just have to focus on that. You can have resolution mechanics and be simulationist. Yeah, boy, simulation. Yes, the simulation that we are all living in is simulationist. Is something that mimics or replicates something else. Usually the real world. And simulationism tends to mostly show up in historical wargaming. I think the greatest and most hilarious example would be the um, campaign for North Africa. Someday, if I can find a copy of it, we'll play that on air. It'll be a 200-hour podcast. Yeah, it'll be longer than the actual campaign for North Africa during World War II. That's a distinct possibility. I think that's actually required if you look at some of the like literature regarding the game. Uh, the campaign for North Africa, for people who don't know, was pub a war game published by, I want to say it was like Strategic Research, which was a company that eventually got folded into TSR back in the 70s. Um, it was a World War II North Africa-themed thing, and it's renowned for taking more than a couple hundred hours to actually play the game all the way through, and the level of detail involved in it. And it has a famous rule, which I'm going to let Ed explain. If you are playing as the Italians, you require more water resources as part of your logistics because most of the rations for the Italian army are based on pasta and require more water than if you're playing as uh, the Germans or the Brits. By far my favorite rule in probably any game ever. Yes, the pasta points or uh, pasta rule. It's... So weird and such a tiny, minute thing that, like, that level of attention to detail is kind of the ultimate simulationist hit. Now, it's not to say that historical war games are the only games that can be simulationist. Um, things like Grumps, the generic role universe. I don't remember what Grumps stands for. Generic role-playing system. Uh, what's the U stand for? Uh, unknown. Yeah, sure. Grups, this massive, multi-volume-spanning generic role-playing system that has extra books that you can add in for everything. Literally everything. Gets very much into the weeds about specific things because you can just keep adding source books to get to the specific thing you want. It's kind of simulationist. That seems kind of surprising because isn't isn't Steve Jackson the the publisher for uh, Grups? Steve Jackson Games is. When I hear Steve Jackson Games, I don't. My first thought is more towards the gamist and not necessarily simulation. Yeah, um, Grups is its own thing. Let's just go with that. It's worth having an entire episode on Grups someday when I've had time to research it and, like, read more than a couple of the books ten years ago. Um, but 
suffice to say, there are Grups supplements for anything, and you can just keep adding stuff and adding stuff and adding stuff to Grups because it's supposed to be a universal uh, system. But it also means it has rules for everything, so it's probably the most simulationist system I can think of off the top of my head. I can't really think of anything that's RPG set up like that that does a lot of simulation-y type things. There are some... Uh, some of the like more gritty role-playing games a lot of times will have stuff that kind of focuses on realism. Uh, something like Traveler, even, which is a like high-concept sci-fi game, takes its science very seriously. Like, your ships are scientifically accurate to an extent. You think we're playing Spelljammer? Think again. Yeah, no. But it's very focused on realism or at least consistency. And actually, that's kind of the important thing with simulationism is consistency. Just having a certain level of consistency between your games and between the things that happen in the games is the simulationist element that shows up in all the other stuff. Like in Dungeons and Dragons, there's a simulationist element in that like you can't just carry an infinite amount of gear, assuming that your DM is using encumbrance rules. Although honestly, how many how many games have we ever played with encumbrance rules? I've done it on occasion. Uh, usually in online games where some other system will track it for me, but you know, I've used it. Simulation can make it into board games. Uh, Terraforming Mars is kind of simulationist um, because you are doing theoretically actual science projects that would be used if you were terraforming Mars, and it tries to simulate their effects on the planet in terms of increasing the oxygen level and the heat level and all the other things that make that game so interesting. It's also a very gamist system because you get points and money and tile placement and worker stuff. It, it It's fun game, but it has some strong simulationist elements because that's what makes it interesting. Ed, you play squad commander. Squad leader. Squad leader, that's an advanced squad leader. There's a different game called uh, Combat Commander. Ah, yes. Which is interesting because it, it's kind of a blend of the simulation aspects of advanced squad leader with a lot more of the gamest elements that you would find in some other board game that's not necessarily trying to be 100% accurate. Even the fact that... Uh, the details in combat commander can be fairly vague. Usually it's, you know, say you're having X battle at this time and you have a rather generic map that you use, um, as compared to squad leader, which it uses the really detailed maps, even though they're not like one-to-one -one recreations, unless you're doing a specific campaign like red barricades. Yeah. And, Advanced Squad Leader is a World War II... Uh, is it hex-based or grid-based? Uh, it's hex-based. It's a hex-based World War II, like, battle simulator. It's not really a miniatures game, because it just uses tokens. There are uh, certain 
mad men, mad women, mad individuals who do play uh, advanced squad leader using uh, one 300 scale miniatures. Each little unit stack has like six, uh, six millimeter dudes on it. Yeah, cool. When people can pull it off, it's incredibly impressive. Um, there was one guy in our local group who he and his wife were really into that, and they played using the miniatures. But the game is freaking huge just on its own, so I can't necessarily imagine having to paint thousands of the little six millimeter dot dudes and to take those maps and translate them into uh, 3D representations of those maps because the maps are very exact and the terrain is uh, very detailed. So if you were to change some of that map so that it doesn't necessarily line up with how it is on the printed board, your game is going to turn out a lot differently if you're playing miniatures versus just the standard tabletop. But it's impressive when it happens. In that game, because it's very simulationist, terrain and sight lines and cover and blocking stuff is super important, right? Yeah, and you have, like, you know, your base level, and then you can have half levels, and then first, second, third level. Um, There are even, like, little widgets that you can put into uh, Vassal, the online version of the game, that will automatically calculate your line of sight for you, because line of sight can be a pain in the ass to calculate, especially if you're, like, on a hill and you're trying to see over a building and you know, trying to figure out how many blind hexes are behind this building and can you see these dudes or not. And so usually we just use the little widget to calculate it for us, makes things a lot faster. Yeah, and again, this is simulationist. It tries to be as precise and as realistic as it can. Um, Usually you reach a point of diminishing returns with simulationism where a game can't be more precise without adding a whole extra set of rules that would make it take twice as long or three times as long or whatever. And so that's the point at which the game stops simulating and it just goes back to being a gamist system. Yeah. There's, there's a couple elements like that in advanced squad leader, um, particularly the rules for like offboard artillery. Um, I'm sure there's ways that if you were really dedicated, you could find some way to have like a separate board set up with, you know, specific pieces of artillery that have, you know, different ranges, different calibers. Um, But it's a lot simpler for the way that they do it, where, you know, if you call it an artillery strike, you draw a card that says either yes or no, and then you drop the round, and then it'll scatter a certain distance, and you use that as, like, your point of reference for, you know, where your next shot's going to come in. So there are certain elements of the game that do trend more gamey, but it's... Because you're yeah. you're trying to simulate something that's far outside your operational area, and it doesn't really make sense to have like a whole separate board set up just for off-board artillery that you know nobody is ever gonna come by and you know outflank your artillery or anything like that. So it doesn't really make sense to simulate it as in the same amount of detail. Yeah. So yeah, that's simulationism in a nutshell, uh, and. That's gamism, that's simulationism, and the last category is narrativist, or narrativism. Yeah, boy. Which is all about the story. The places where this shows up the most, like the top most, is rules-light RPGs. While you can implement a narrativist aspect into anything, 
And it's usually an important part of creating an ongoing campaign in a game. It shows up in stuff that doesn't have as much in resolution mechanics or in details and kind of asks the players and the game master to work together to kind of create a story. Uh, RPGs like Vampire the Masquerade, Werewolf the... whatever the werewolf is, I don't... I think it's... I think Apocalypse was one of them. I don't remember what... Maybe... I think it's Werewolf the Forsaken was the newest one. Yeah, Mage the Awakening. Okay, Werewolf the Wolfening. The Wolfening, yes. And you can have it even in board games. Um, A favorite of mine is Time Stories, uh, or as we call it, Time Cops, (laughs) which is an interesting sort of legacy-ish game where you play as agents of a time organization who have to go solve a thing. And the key aspect is that the game and each of the expansions are each one story, and you play through it, and then you kind of have to move to a new one. It doesn't have a lot of replay value because it's a story that you've completed. But all the stories eventually kind of link together towards a larger story. I'm I'm not I'm never quite sure how I feel about those legacy games because for me, replay value is a fairly important element of gaming, specifically why I like things like D&D is because you get the book and there's infinite possibilities of what you could do. But time stories, it's like you're spending, you know, 80 bucks on a game and then it's like one and done and you think, okay, that was cool. And then, you know, what do you do? It's like, and then you got to buy, buy the next one or play that. And for some of those, you can't even, you know, donate it somewhere and be like, here, somebody else can enjoy it. Cause you have to like manipulate elements of the board itself that, you know, you can't really start from zero. Yeah. Time stories doesn't do that, thankfully, but the other part is true. You do have to keep adding pieces. The legacy aspect is how you add narrativist elements to something that would otherwise just be gamist. It creates a mechanic that lends itself really well to storytelling and to enhancing storytelling. And honestly, I think that's why Gloomhaven is one of the top games right now on Board Game Geek. Because it's a board game that's primary elements are both gamist and narrativist because as you play the game you unlock more things you create characters that like survive and keep moving it it's almost a role-playing game and some would probably argue that it is a role-playing game it's a board game i'm not going to argue about that but it, it has a lot of things going for it that build a story, which causes people to really like it. And you can also have narrativist elements in war games, usually in smaller scale skirmish war games that have ongoing campaigns. Things like Necromunda or Mordheim or a lot of the really good indie uh, games, Frostgrave. Does it? Uh, Rangers of Shadowdeep is like all narrativist all the time. This is not a test, does it? Uh, we get it in 
Last Days, the zombie apocalypse one, uh, and even if you do a season of Gaslands, which is a Mad Max-inspired cars, like automotive mayhem racing kind of game. Do you count? Do you count emergent storytelling as part of that genre or type of type of gameplay? If the game is designed with emergent storytelling in mind, then it has narrativist elements. Well, I was I was thinking more of just like, you know, the players they're playing and then they kind of come up with stories around what's happening on the board. Um, in my experience with Advanced Squad Leader, it's something that happens quite often where uh, something will happen and will more or less kind of narrate what happens. Uh, for example, I had a game that I was playing that was set during the Korean War. I was playing as the North Koreans. Uh, the NATO troops pushed my guys off a ridge. Everybody got killed except for the North Korean commissar who went berserk, grabbed a grenade, and immediately charged uh, the closest Sherman tank that he could find. So we're like, yep, he's just, he's gone nuts. He's going to go out in a burst of glory. So we have a lot of kind of emergent storytelling elements like that that we bring out ourselves that aren't necessarily baked into the game, but it at least makes the gameplay more interesting than just rolling the dice and consulting the table to see what he does. Yeah. See, that's more an aspect of you as a player being into the narrativist elements of it rather than the game itself having those narrativist portions. Got it. Yeah, that makes that makes more sense. If the game had a rule that said, like, if these people survive give them names and use them in the next mission. Then it would have narrative elements, but human beings are inherent storytellers. I think history and sociology have kind of told us that we will tell stories about anything. It's why, it's why you can have pet rocks. People will attach agency to literally anything in the world and will con concoct a story about why it does the thing. It's like my coffee cup that it's like my coffee cup that decided to explode shortly before uh, starting this podcast. It just decided that it had had enough. And uh, yeah, it was a 1910 Ford branded coffee cup. So I guess it's just living up to its moniker of found on road dead. Sounds. Yeah, exactly. You we create a story about this thing and we will do that in anything. So that's an aspect that shows up in games even where there is no narrativist element. People will add a story. And in games where there are mechanics for adding more story to it, people, I think, get more involved than in games where it's just, here are your dudes, throw them at one another, and roll a bunch of dice. It definitely makes life in the game a lot more interesting. I think, especially when it comes to tabletop wargaming, that's why I prefer the small-scale skirmish games over something larger like Warhammer 40k or Age of Sigmar, because you get you get that player agency of, you know, creating your own stories and but the potential for additions of RPG mechanics compared to just one large army game where, you know, your dudes, they're all interchangeable. They they don't particularly make a lasting impact game to game. 
Yeah, and the other thing with that is that the nature of the stories you tell in those are very different. In a large-scale war game, the stories you tell are basically all just like big war stories where this guy's the last survivor or he leads the heroic charge or he rescues his buddies or oh, big war stories. Whereas in the smaller scale skirmish games, each individual character oftentimes like holds over from game to game. So it's the same person experiencing these things. And you can build a narrative, even without the game rules, about who this person is, what they like, what they don't like. If you have a game where one of your characters like fails a morale check and runs away, the next game you play, you might put them in the back because you have a feeling that they're going to freak out and run if something goes wrong. Yeah, I'd say that that applies to a, a lot of my wargaming experience. Pretty much everybody gets a name, everybody has a history... Yeah, and that's applying narrativist elements to war games, which sometimes have excellent narrativist elements. Um, Necromunda being the like first one that I can really think of that locks this in as a war game, where pretty much all of your characters were named, they could take injuries, they could be promoted, they would have stuff happen to them, even like outside of the game, you'd have them do little adventures between missions. Yeah, I think Necromunda and or Mordheim are at least the two that I know. Yeah, which was fantasy equivalent. Yeah. Um, there was another one called Inquisitor, which I think was like a hybrid of like a standard RPG. And then it had um, kind of like wargamey skirmish scenarios that were usually directed by some kind of GM and they used like big 50 millimeter miniatures. It was a weird hybrid. Um, yeah. So that would be an interesting one to check out at some point. And you've get like old stuff like hero quest yes. was a board game is a board game will be soon when they finally ship it and I get my copy that had role-playing elements just sort of transcribed to the board where the characters didn't really have names. They were the barbarian, the dwarf, the wizard, and the elf. And they just went through these adventures and there wasn't a lot of like change in the characters, but you could add to that. You could kind of generate more and the more advanced versions of the game, the, the stuff that kind of spun off of it, like, um, what was the Warhammer-specific one? Uh, Warhammer Quest. Warhammer Quest? Was that the one that, that had the, like, tiles? I'm pretty sure it was Warhammer Quest. I think that one later kind of moved more into, like, an RPG-type game. Um, but I know that the... I think it was... Ha was it Hasbro who published Hero Quest originally? Yes, Hasbro published the original Hero Quest with Games Workshop miniatures. Yeah, and then they kind of split away from Games Workshop, and G-Dubs is like, hey, let's keep going on this Hero Quest thing, and so they did their, their own spin on it. Yes, and Warhammer Quest has a whole bunch of narrativist elements thrown in to, like, you do stuff between missions. You have a whole sequence of going back to town and, like, rolling dice to see what happens to your characters, and, like, create story. It's very much about creating a story with these characters 
that you get to name and are a little more do a lot more leveling up and a lot more interesting side things. So yeah, that's gameism, that's simulationism, that's narrativism. And those are the three pillars of things in games in general. This isn't to say that you have to like select one and only do that one, but knowing which one of these you like and which one of these different types of games give you can help you find the games that you really enjoy and find elements in games that you think are stronger and have a better time while playing games. It's never something that I'd really considered before, but it does it does make sense now. And just trying to think of what draws me to specific games, what makes me like certain games over others as a war gamer and, you know, mostly simulationist, you should think that I would like 40k, but I don't because it's much more gamey than that. Yeah. And like I said, we'll get into why I don't like 40k despite having played it for a decent number of years in a later episode. Before we discovered that there were any other options out there beyond 40k. Yes, because fantasy and 40k were all we knew was young men. But this is no country for old men, and we have learned. Oh, how we have learned. Right. So, there's something we're going to do, and that is the board game of the week. Uh, that The name's a work in progress. If you have a different option, let us know. If you have a board game of the week theme song, send it to us. Yeah, if you have stuff you want to give us to help us with production value, send it to us. Uh, but a game of the week where we're going to talk briefly about a game that we have played and we like. And for this first one, we're going to talk about something that in the discussion we just had is 100% gamist. It is a weird game that a friend of ours bought uh, called Click Clack Lumberjack. Uh, it was originally published in South Korea, and it is like Jenga. It's a dexterity game. It's very much a skill-based dexterity game where you have a plastic tree with bark on the outside that can, like, fall off if it's not stacked perfectly straight, and you have a plastic axe, and you hit the tree to try and cause the bark to fall off without causing the, like, interior section of the tree, the, like, log portion, to fall off. And you get points for how much bark you knock off and lose points for how much trunk you knock off. Pretty much. And it's a it's lot hilarious of fun. no matter what happens. It is an excellent game for people who don't like rules heavy games. Yep. It is perfect for playing while you wait for the rest of the group to like show up if you're holding the board game night. You can have it out. You can have people just start hitting this thing and they'll laugh and have fun. And then when everyone else gets there, you can be like, okay, fine, we'll finish this round because rounds take 10 to 15 minutes at most. And then put it away and 
play whatever more complicated game you're going to play. Wingspan, Terraforming Mars, Arkham Horror. I taught my family how to play it over Thanksgiving a couple years ago, pre-pandemic. And uh, all I had to do was say, here's the axe. You get two whacks at the tree to try and knock the bark off. And uh, my sister took the first turn and immediately knocked the whole tree over. Nice. Yeah, it's it's an great easy game for people who don't have a lot of time or want to do something quick or just don't like board games with detailed rules. And I recommend picking up a copy if you want something that's like very different. Yeah, I also will go for for that one. Uh, dexterity games tend to be ones that I quite like for whatever reason i think it's because as people who are very much into tabletop games there aren't a whole lot that use that kind of mechanic so it's a breath of fresh air to see something where the mechanics are based around actually physically doing a task rather than rolling dice or playing cards yeah i think the only other the other one that immediately comes to mind is called uh, flick em up and it's a Wild West themed one where you have meeples and you're trying to simulate this little shootout in a Wild West town and you have little cutouts of uh, old timey Wild West buildings and to shoot your gun you have a little uh, like kind of hockey puck shaped piece and you actually have to flick it at the uh, other guys and if you knock them over they get shot dead or you can have bullets you know bounce off a building and ricochet into something else. If you have, if you find a rifle, um, you get like a little like tuning fork type thing that helps you aim your shot better than just you know flicking it with your finger. I haven't played it yet, but I've seen I've seen people play it. It looks like a lot of fun, but it is a bit more setup and rules heavy uh, for a dexterity game compared to something like Click Clack Lumberjack. Another classic dexterity based one is uh, Terror in Meeple City formerly known as Rampage, until they got a cease and desist from the video game Rampage. Was that the original name? <laughs> I didn't. I think I missed that part of it. That was the original name, yes. Uh, yeah, which is like a Godzilla destroying a city game, except that the actual attacks that you make as the monster are all based on you physically doing something to, like, the atomic breath is you, like, blowing over a building full of little meeple figures. Nice. The jumping attack is you, like, dropping a puck onto stuff. It, it's very dexterity-based, but it's also got card aspects, and, like, you have to create little buildings with people. It's it's another game that we'll talk about in detail at some point. I can dig it. Yeah, but the board game for this week, Click Clack Lumberjack. Play it Weird now. Weird South Korean dexterity game. Find it at your local game store. Or when you can't find it there because it's a weird South Korean game, I guess buy it on Amazon. Uh, but check your local game store first. We are very much in favor of local game stores. Yep. Support your support your local board game store. Don't just go there and use their tables and then leave. Actually, you know, buy something. Buy a drink at least. Yeah. Yeah, at least. Buy an extra role-playing book or miniatures or dice or something too. Those people create a place for you to play games. You kind of got to support them. Right? Yep. This has been Null Country for Old Men. 
and keep playing games, I guess. Have fun. Join a union. Unionize your board game players. I don't know what that'll do for you, but the more unions, the better. <laughs>